Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, I'll be looking at verses 3 through 10, and then also tying into that passage uh, three verses at the end of the chapter that fit very well together. Uh, so 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 to 10, and then verses 17 to 19. Please give your attention to God's word. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to get, set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Many years ago, the children's author Shel Silverstein wrote a children's book called Where the Sidewalk Ends. And in that book, it, he has a poem written from the perspective of a very foolish young boy. Here's how the poem goes. He says, my dad gave me $1 bill because I am his smartest son. And I swapped it for two shiny quarters because two is more than one. Then I took the quarters and traded them to Lou for three dimes. I guess he didn't know that three is more than two. Just then along came old blind Bates, and just because he can't see, he gave me four nickels for my three dimes, and four is more than three. And I took the nickels to Hiram Combs down at the seed feed store, and the fool gave me five pennies for them, and five is more than four. And I went and showed my dad, and he got red in the cheeks and closed his eyes and shook his head, too proud of me to speak. <laughs> that poem reminds me of how our Father in heaven sometimes, many times, must shake his head and close his eyes when he looks at how we invest the resources that he places in our hands how we have such a strong tendency to invest foolishly, to invest in the things of this world, to invest in things that ultimately have no value while giving up things that have eternal value. Our scripture passage this morning is about gain, two kinds of gain. It's really 
two kinds of investment in life. And we're all investing every day. Every day you wake up, you go to work, go to school, whatever you're doing, you're investing. And the best investment advice you're ever going to get is going to come in these verses that we're going to look at today. One kind of investment leads to eternal reward and is infinitely valuable. The other kind of investment, as Paul will tell us, leads to ruin and destruction. So it's really important that you do a portfolio check this morning. How are you investing your resources? What have you done with what material, monetary blessings God has placed in your hands? It's an opportunity to ask yourself, what kind of gain are you seeking in your life? Paul begins this passage by again bringing up these false teachers. As we've seen through this entire epistle of 1 Timothy, as Paul writes to young Timothy, the pastor of the church in Ephesus, he is deeply concerned that there are wolves among the sheep, that there are people in that church fellowship that are teaching wrong things, that are leading people astray. And so continually, repeatedly in this letter, he's warning Timothy to watch out for these wolves, to eliminate the influence of these wolves upon his church. In chapter 1, he described these false teachers in in this way. We're going to see a lot of parallels in the way he describes them in chapter 1 and how he describes them here in chapter 6. In chapter 1, he described them as those who devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, who have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding what they are saying. As Paul concludes this letter, he's going to talk about signs of false teachers, things to look for. We live in an age in the church when the church is also full of wolves among the sheep. There are many false teachers who call themselves preachers, teachers, leaders in the church. And so you're going to, as we look at the descriptions, again, very similar to chapter one, as he gives more descriptions of these false teachers, it's going to sound familiar. The kind of false teachers that we still see in the church today. The first description he gives is that they wander from the truth. And this is the most important one. Always be checking what you're being taught, no matter how charismatic, how persuasive, no matter how personable the preacher and teacher is, always be comparing what you're being taught to the Word of God, the standard of truth. In verse 3, Paul says, He, the false teacher, teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness. Continually in this letter, he's talking about the teaching, the doctrine, the sound words. There is a defined set of revelation from God that is absolute truth. We call it the Bible. And it is the standard by which we are to all, we all have the responsibility to, to gauge, to measure what's being taught to us by what God has revealed as truth in his word. And so Paul is warning, these false teachers wander from the truth. He uses the word sound, the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word in the original Greek means more literally healthy, the healthy words. And so every church, every Christian has a choice. You can either feed upon the sound words, the healthy words, the word of Christ given in the scriptures, Or you can feed on the unsound, unhealthy words of false teachers. The word of Christ, given here in the Bible, the word of Christ is life-giving. It's healthy. It gives life. Whereas false teaching 
sucks the life out of you and leads you to death. The sound, the healthy words of Christ are healing, whereas false teaching is destructive. The word of Christ is restorative, whereas the teaching that is being given by these false teachers tears down and destroys. That's the first characteristic. Their teaching departs from the given word of God. Second characteristic is they are driven by pride. He says in verse 4, this false teacher is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. As you sit under the teaching of some false teachers, you realize after a while that who they're, the person they're exalting is not Jesus Christ, but themselves. As you listen carefully to their ministry and look at what they're doing, it's more about them than it is about Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, they tend to obscure Christ from our vision of faith. So how clearly are your preachers and teachers being faithful to the word of Christ and presenting Christ in his work faithfully. The third characteristic is they divide the church. Look at verse 4, the second half of it. The false teacher has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words. It's an interesting trait of a false teacher is that wherever they go, they engender, they begin, they start, they maintain controversy. They thrive on controversy. Instead of focusing on the, the gospel, they they major on the minors instead. And they thrive and they, they, they are effective in their own minds by dividing people from one another, dividing Christians. The fruit of their ministry, Paul says, as you look at that list he gives in verse 4, the fruit of their ministry is envy among the people of God, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Instead of, instead of preaching the gospel and faithfully presenting God's word, which draws sinners together in Christ, instead they sow seeds of dissension and division. And the effect of their false teaching is to split churches. Because that's what always has to happen in the long run. The truth has to divide from the lie. And then fourth... The fourth characteristic is the one that Paul really dwells on in this chapter, which is that they seek earthly gain. They are invested in what this world has to offer. Being more wealthy, more popular, more power, whatever it is that this world has to offer, that's what drives them. They seek earthly gain. That's what he says in verse 5. It says they were imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And by gain, in that context, he's referring to worldly gain, material gain. Matter of fact, the word itself actually contains the idea of financial gain. We've seen already that godliness is an important concept in 1 Timothy. It's an important word to Paul. He uses it nine times in six chapters. To him, that is the, as we saw before, the mission of life is to pursue godliness. And godliness, literally in the original language, means to, to fear God, to live, have a God-fearing life. So godliness is good. It's the most important thing to Christians. But these false teachers were both living and promoting a false godliness. Look at what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4. He describes false teachers there. In this way, it says, swollen with conceit, there's the pride again that motivates their ministry. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, 
And by that, of course, he means the pleasures of this world and particularly sinful pleasures. And then he goes on to say, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Having the appearance of godliness, a fake godliness, a godliness that's only for show. But their real purpose was to gain in this world, to manipulate people. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 4, avoid such people. Their godliness is fake. Their religion is fake. It's play acting. Their intent is to lead people astray. Now, of course, our minds quickly go in our day and age to the health and wealth guys on TV. That certainly would be an example of what Paul's talking about. But it was certainly different in the first century. But whatever it was, whatever earthly riches they were seeking for, whatever earthly rewards they wanted, it was all about building their own kingdom. Whether it's through money, through status, through authority. I, uh, there's a very important church history document. One of the earliest documents we have from, and we don't have much in the way of documents from the early church, but one of the earliest ones we have is called the Didache. It was written within 50 years, probably, of when the scriptures were finished. And in the Didache, it's, it's just a practical letter written to churches, and it's basically for that day and age telling them, same thing Paul's trying to do here, how do you know if, if, if these traveling preachers, and that was very common to have preachers proclaiming Christ, assuming they're proclaiming Christ, coming through town, visiting for a few days, few days and moving on, kind of like traveling preachers that were back, you know, 80, 100 years ago. And they would travel through, and so this was written to help the congregations to know whether these guys were good guys, whether they were preaching the truth, or whether they were false preachers or not. And there's a couple of sections in the Didache about how to recognize what they called false prophets. One of, the, one of the characteristics to watch for is he said, if they stay for more than three days, they're a false prophet. And the second, second characteristic of the Lord is do they ask for money? Now, of course, Jesus said, go and don't take a, you know, don't take a, a, a purse with you. Don't, don't go prepared to you know, expect people to show hospitality and take care of you. But if he's asking for money, watch out. If he stays for longer than three days, watch out. And again, in that culture, in that setting, that, those were red flags. We have maybe different red flags in our culture, but it comes down to the same earthly gain that these false teachers were looking for. The Apostle Paul was very clear in his ministry to avoid any appearance of greed. We see it all the time in his letters that there were false teachers, interestingly, accusing Paul of doing what he did only for the money. And that's exactly why Paul emphasizes over and over and over that he avoided the appearance of being greed, greedy. In Acts chapter 20, uh, Paul is addressing the, the elders of the same church, the church in Ephesus. In his final speech to these elders in Ephesus as he's departing, he says to them, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. Paul emphasizes over and over again, even as we've seen in, in 1 Timothy and Thessalonians, he worked, he had a right, he says, very clearly, he had a right as a preacher of the gospel to make his living from preaching and teaching and discipling. He had a right to that. But Paul keeps saying, I gave it up when I was among you. I was a tent maker. Literally, he was a tent making pastor because he was actually making tents and selling them to provide for his own material needs and for the associates that were with him. He didn't have to do that, but he did it to make a statement is that I am not in this for earthly gain. 
I am here because I love Christ and I'm here because he's given me a love for you. And so I'm sharing you the truth. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. There are a lot of peddlers of God's word out there today. But he says, I was not a peddler of God's word, but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, we never came with a pretext for greed. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Paul saw his ministry as taking away the burdens of sin and guilt and the struggles with sin in this fallen world. He did not come to bring any burden to any church. And yet these false teachers, they were all about the earthly gain. But then Paul goes on to make an interesting point. He doesn't, in his, in his attack on the false teachers, he doesn't take the next step that I would take. What he actually says is, the point that he makes at the, in the rest of the passage is to say, you know, these false teachers, they're not wrong to be seeking gain. There's nothing wrong with seeking gain. We should seek gain. We should invest for our own betterment. The problem is with these false teachers, they're looking for the wrong kind of gain. They're looking for gain in this world, what this world has to offer. Paul says that godliness itself is the gain that we should be seeking for. Paul says godliness isn't a means to an end. That's what he's saying that the false teachers are doing. That they were using this fake godliness to get to the end of earthly benefit, earthly blessing. The problem wasn't that they were seeking gain. It's they were seeking it in the wrong place. He says godliness is gain. Godliness with contentment is gain itself. It's the end to which we live. Paul says to Timothy back in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, these false teachings. He says, rather train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. Bodily training does have value. But that value goes away when we, our body gets old and weak and eventually dies. So that training has no lasting impact. But godliness is rewarding to us for all eternity. It has reward right now, certainly. But even greater reward in the future. So invest in godliness, Paul says. So what does real godliness look like? He brings up the word contentment. Real, you'll know real godliness because it's always accompanied by contentment. And it's interesting, Paul, Paul chooses a word here in the Greek that means, in a, in a literal sense, it means self-sufficiency. It was a very important word to the Greeks. It was a goal of their lives to be self-sufficient. It was considered a virtue in Greek culture. It was especially important word to the Stoics. If you know Stoic philosophy, that was a major school of philosophy in ancient Greece. The Stoic, for the Stoic, their goal was to not be controlled by or to be dependent upon either internal emotions or external rewards. We talk about, a, we think of a Stoic person as somebody who's unaffected by their emotions and unaffected by circumstances around them. A stoic person is somebody who's just solid as a rock in the sense that they can't be moved, either from internal forces or external forces. And so they strove in Greek culture for self-sufficiency, self-satisfaction. 
But Paul doesn't mean that when he uses the word. Paul often did that. He would take words that were well-known in the culture, and then he'd change the meaning and redeem the meaning. And so what Paul, when Paul talked about contentment, he wasn't talking about self-sufficiency. He was talking about Christ-sufficiency. You get a sense of it in 2 Corinthians. In chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, verse 9, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's the gospel. You were poor. In other words, you were under God's wrath and condemnation. You were destined for hell for eternity. You were a slave to your sins. You lived in darkness. You were poor in the eyes of God. But then he sent his son, who was rich in glory, in all the, of the essence of, of being the second person of the Trinity. And he left his riches, not in the sense of his holiness, but he left the riches of heaven, came to earth, became a servant, became a slave, all the way to the point of death on a cross, where he took our poverty, our sin, our guilt upon himself, and paid for it in full. And then he was raised from the dead. And brought us with him through his resurrection into new life, an eternal life, where we are forgiven by our faith in Christ and reunited with our holy God. And now we are rich because Christ has taken our poverty from us and given us the gift of his riches. That's important to your self-identity as a Christian. I am rich in Christ. But then in the next chapter, in verse, chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, verse 8, Paul says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That's the goal of your life is to have sufficiency in all things, in all times, in all places, in all circumstances. To be that unmovable rock that the Stoics talked about, not because of self-sufficiency, but because Christ is faithful. Because Christ always provides what we truly need. He is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. If you understand that, then you go back to Philippians chapter 4. You know this passage. This is very familiar, much, a very well-loved passage from uh, Philippians chapter 4. Paul talks there about the secret to contentment. But if you only study that passage, he doesn't really spell out what the secret is, kind of frustratingly. He talks about the blessing of contentment, but he doesn't tell what the secret is. But we just saw what the secret is. It's in knowing Christ and trusting in Christ, depending upon Christ, finding your sufficiency in him. So then knowing that, listen to what he says in Philippians 4, beginning in verse 11. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He is sufficient. His grace is sufficient, no matter what my outward circumstances are. And then he concludes that great passage with verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Another place that clearly spells out the secret of contentment is Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. The writer there says, keep your life free from the love of money. We're going to look at that in a moment. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's the secret to contentment. And contentment is what accompanies true godliness. It is a key feature of what true godliness is. Contentment is based in two truths that you'll find from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture. The first truth is that this life and its rewards are fleeting. This life and its rewards are fleeting. The gain that this world has to offer to you is like the grass of the field. It's here today and gone tomorrow. And Paul alludes to this in verse 7 by saying, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Now, if you know the Old Testament scriptures, you know that that sounds very familiar. It's something very similar to what Job said. Remember Job? He lived about the time of Abraham, so he lived very early in biblical history. And Job went through times of incredible suffering, far beyond anything you or I will ever have to face. And he, at one point, in the midst of his suffering, he says in chapter 1, verse 21, And Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is a statement of contentment. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, now remember in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's written from the perspective, the writer of Ecclesiastes purposely confines himself to a worldview that believes there's nothing above the sun. He only views life under the sun. In other words, only life in this world, as if there is no God and there is no eternal life. So when you read Ecclesiastes, you have to understand he's, he's examining life as if there is no God and there is no eternal life. And it's in that worldview, in that reality, that he writes in chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, he says, speaking of, of this person, he says, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came. There's that message again and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry it away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? If there is no eternal reward, if there's no God, and everything, every earthly reward is going to turn to dust and blow away, life is meaningless. It's vanity. Who can live in that worldview? John Stott, commenting on this verse in 1 Timothy 6, he says this, this is just a little more memorable, same thing, just a little more memorable. He says, our life on earth is a brief pilgrimage between two moments of nakedness. Our life on earth is just a brief pilgrimage between two moments of nakedness. That's what Job's trying to say, that's what the writer Ecclesiastes is trying to say, that's what Paul's trying to say. Don't live for these earthly rewards. It's all going to go away more quickly than you realize. He does say in verse 8, so if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. It's interesting. He does mention that there is a need. There is a level of need. It's legitimate to go to the Lord and say, I, there, I, I need certain things, Lord. You put me here on this fallen pl you know, planet. You put me as a sinner among sinners. You've given me this new life. You've given me a message of the gospel. I do need something. I need food and I need clothing. And actually that word clothing in the Greek means coverings. And so they, they think it also includes the idea of shelter. So you can legitimately say, Lord, I need food, I need clothing, and I need shelter. But anything beyond that is unnecessary. It's riches, it's wealth, it's luxury. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Is that your level of contentment? Is there anybody here 
You don't have to raise your hand, but feel free if you want. Is there anybody here who only has enough food to eat today and a, a, a suit of clothes to wear today and has a roof over your head today? Is there anybody who's at that level of subsistence? I didn't think so. We are all well beyond the status by which at any point after that, Paul is saying you could be content because Christ is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. He will provide. Everything that we need, truly need, the Lord will provide. The problem is we don't define our need by what Christ says. We define our need by what the world tells us. And that's falling into that whole error of investing in the gain of this world. The second truth that contentment is based upon is that the love of money is, the root, is a root of all kinds of evil and leads to ruin and destruction. The love of money, a, a love of money, is a, a root of all kinds of evil and leads to ruin and destruction. Now, there, Paul, when he talks about loving money, he doesn't mean the little slip of paper that you carry in your wallet or your pocketbook. That's not the money he's talking it, We don't love that piece of paper what we, or that, those coins. What we love is what they bring into our lives. We love the reward that those things have. When you have lots of those pieces of paper and lots of those coins, and there's lots of things in this world that you can have. And it's the love of that, the reward of money, that Paul's talking about. But Ecclesiastes, again, going back to chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, the same chapter, it says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. This also is vanity. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Don't you know that to be true? I mean, just think back over the last 5, 10 years, the things you really wanted 10 years ago. Do you have them now? If so, do they satisfy you? Are you content? Do you stop longing for something else? No, because money's not like that. Matter of fact, one commentator I read this week said that money is like seawater. You drink it and it just makes you more thirsty. And it cannot satisfy you. That's what money is. Jesus once said that it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, he wasn't saying that rich people can't enter the kingdom of God because he goes on to say all things are possible with God. Humanly speaking, rich people can't get into the kingdom of God, but thankfully, getting into the kingdom of God is not something any of us can do, and it's something that God could do in his power and his grace. But what he's pointing out there is if you are wealthy in this world, and every one of you are, if you're wealthy in this world, it's really hard to believe in Christ, to trust in Christ, to be content with just food and clothing and shelter. It's hard if you're wealthy. He says that in, in our sinfulness, wealth makes us haughty. It makes us prideful, puffed up with conceit. And then secondly, in verse 17, Paul says that wealth causes people to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Like the man who built more barns and then said, ah, I'm at rest now. I can rest easy. I can kick up my feet because I've got lots of stored up goods in my barns. And the Lord says, you fool, tonight you die. And who will get what you have provided for yourself? They don't, rich people find it very hard to depend upon the Lord. Because they, have, they feel they have their own resources. But it is God who richly provides us with everything to, joy, to enjoy, Paul says. That's why, it's, you know, that's why Jesus taught us every day to pray the Lord's Prayer. Or at least some version of the Lord's Prayer. And to say, give me today our, my daily bread. It's a way to pray that says, I trust you for tomorrow, Lord. 
I trust you to be the God who richly provides everything I need to do your will. It may not be everything I think I need, probably isn't, I'm sure it isn't everything I think I need, but you will provide everything I need to do your will for today and tomorrow and beyond. In Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, it gives this prayer. It's an interesting prayer. Not an easy prayer to pray. He says in, in thir- verses 8 and 9, Proverbs 30, he says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Lord, don't make me rich. Don't let me go without my basic needs in life being met. But feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you. And say, who is the Lord? See, that's what the rich person does. You're full. You meet your own needs by your own efforts, you feel. And you don't need the Lord. Or lest I be poor and love money in the sense of coveting what I don't have. This is what he's saying. Lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Both poverty, not having your basic needs met in life, and being wealthy tend to lead you into sin. And so he says, just pray for your daily bread. Just pray for the Lord to provide you what you need to fulfill your mission as God has called you in this world. That's what it means to live in dependence upon the Lord. It's what it means to live with Christ's sufficiency instead of self-sufficiency. And then in that last section, I included verses 17 through 19 because I think it's the logical outcome where he talks about the generosity that flows out of true godliness. True godliness is accompanied always by contentment and the contentment that is produced in godliness produces generosity. And that's what Paul alludes to in verses 17 through 19. He shows us there how to transfer our assets from our earthly accounts to eternal accounts. I mean, I told you, this is the best investment advice you're ever going to get. Here's how to transfer your earthly riches into eternal riches. Back at the end of the Civil War, during the time of the Civil War, the southern states, they developed their own government, their own laws, and they developed their own currency. So you, you actually sometimes there still exists some Confederate money that you can find. Now, think if you were maybe a year before the war ended, and everybody in the South still thinking they're going to win the war, but you somehow get a word of prophecy or whatever if that thing really truly happened, and you were able to say, you know what, I know the South is going to lose the war. And in a year, this money that I've been accumulating is going to be absolutely worthless, and it was when the North won the war. If you knew that in advance, what what would you do with your money? You go out and buy all kinds of things that would still have value after you lost the war. After the war was over, you would buy things. You would transfer those assets from the coins and the dollar bills for Confederate money into something that had lasting value. Well, in a very real sense, we have to make that kind of decision every day. The money in our accounts, the money in our wallets, the resources we have, it's all going to be worthless very, very soon. And so Paul is saying, you need to transfer your assets. You need to cash in this money that's soon to be worthless and turn it into something that has eternal value. That's what he says in verses 18 to 19 where he says, The rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. You see, it's not wrong to want gain, but where are you seeking your gain? Is it in something that's going to burn up and, and go away? Or is your gain in something that's going to last for eternity? Real riches come out of good works done to to serve others, to serve the poor, to serve the needy, to be generous and ready to share, Paul says. That's what it means to be rich in eternal things. 
it very much, but almost word, you know, basically repeats in different words what, Paul, what uh, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in chapter, in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 19. Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Are you truly wealthy? All of you are wealthy in this world, by Paul's standard. But are you wealthy eternally? That's what we're we'll striving for because that is the wealth that comes from pursuing godliness, from pursuing the kingdom of God first. Godliness with contentment gives us a healthy detachment from our money. And I think that's what you need to strive for. It's not wrong to be rich. It's not wrong to have things. It's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong. But you need a healthy detachment from your money. In other words, you need to have a very loose grip on it. There's a great verse in, um, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 15, uh, a set of verses there that talk about how we're to care for the poor around us. But listen to how it talks about living open-handedly. Um, he begins, this is Moses speaking, he says, If any among you, one of your brothers, should become poor, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. Don't hold on to your money, your resources. Don't shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Godliness with contentment produces generosity. Godliness with contentment opens your hands, gives you a healthy detachment from your possessions. Scripture presents wealth as a burden. It's not wrong, it's not sinful, it's not wrong to have wealth. But the scripture perspective on wealth is it's a burden that God has placed on your shoulders. It's a burden to carry because it, with wealth comes responsibility. To use that wealth to glorify God, to build his kingdom, and to help those who are in need. David Platt uh, is a writer who I always appreciate the essence of what he's saying. Sometimes I feel like he's a little over the top and maybe a little simplistic in his, his radical claims on people, what, what the Christian life looks like. But at the root of it, I always agree with what he's trying to say. And, and I'll, I'll say the same thing about this quote that I came across this week. David Platt said, an increase in our income shouldn't result in an increased standard of living, but instead an increased standard of giving. An increase in income should not increase your standard of living so much as to increase your standard of giving. And I think that's really what Paul's trying to say. I'm going to close by just quoting a famous philosopher of the not-so-distant past, Karl Marx. You probably know this quote. It's often quoted. He said, he said that religion is the opiate of the masses. That was a, a slam on Christianity and all religions. He basically, because he didn't believe there was a God, he basically had the worldview of Ecclesiastes, where there's nothing above the sun, there's no eternal life, there's no God. He says that religion was just like a drug, something to, to drug people so that they are content in their position in life, so that they don't seek the rewards of this world, so that they don't revolt against the, the powers that be. Religion was just a drug that kept people content, out of touch with reality. He had it exactly wrong, exactly backwards. And I'm going to close by telling you how I would respond if Karl Marx were to say that to me. 
I would say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Christ's sufficiency. His grace is sufficient for all. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for the covetousness in our lives. Forgive us for the pursuit of earthly riches that says so characterizes so many of the things that we do. Forgive us for our poor investments in light of who you are and in light of what Christ has done in light of eternity. Father, we look forward to that day when we will gather around at the table at the marriage feast of the Lamb when Christ returns and we will be able to explore and enjoy and revel in the riches that he has gained for us for all eternity. Lord, help us keep us, our focus there, and we thank you for this meal that we're about to take, which helps us to do just that. Thank you for receiving us to your table by grace and by grace alone. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.